You're listening to the Bon Appetit Foodcast. I'm Adam Rappaport. On this week's episode, Samin Nosrat, cook, teacher, author, all-around super knowledgeable person. Samin is one of those people you speak to and you're just like, God, you're so awesome and you know so much about food and you're so enthusiastic and like, I want to cook with you. I want to learn how to cook from you. And she actually does teach classes, but if you don't happen to get a class with Samin, you can actually pick up her new book called Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. It's that book that you sort of, you learn as much from as you enjoy reading. Kind of say it's, it's somewhat of a game changer in the cookbook world. So it was great to get on the phone with Samin out in Berkeley where she lives, uh, where she got into cooking back in the day when she was a student going to Chez Panisse and she fell in love with it. So she became a busser there and then eventually worked her way up to chef, worked at a bunch of restaurants. She's just one of those really cool people in the food world who loves food and makes you love food. All right, here is Samin and me. Samin, I feel like I have not crammed this hard for a podcast or anything since like senior year in college. There, there is a lot. There is a lot of information in your book. Oh, oh, oh! I see. Oh, I thought you meant like studying up on me, but you just meant reading the book. I meant yes. I mean, it's such an awesome book. But I'm like, oh my god, what if she calls me out on something about like the the at the pH content or balance in lemon juice compared to baking soda, and I get it wrong, and then I'm gonna be like embarrassed, and oh my god. That's how I feel every time I get on an interview because I don't remember anything. <laughs> <I wrote>. uh, <laughs> it's funny when you when you when you're a writer and like yeah, how long it, the gestation period for a book is a few years and you're like I wrote that three years ago I don't remember exactly let me go back and read what I wrote because I can't, I can't totally recall. Totally. And also, yeah. And also I'm not a scientist. And so like a lot of that stuff was really agonizing for me to get the wording just right and like to do the homework and get it right. And so, and some things I even got wrong and now I'm going back and fixing them. And so it's just this, um, you know, I live in constant terror that somebody's going to quiz me on the contents <laughs> of my own book. <laughs> All right. So this is what I want to do. I want to, I want to talk nuts and bolts about the book, about cooking and information that you can sort of help me and the reader and the and the listener with. Um, but before we get to some of the, the ins and outs, I want to talk about the book itself and how you got it published. What was like your, as I say, elevator pitch to your publisher when you had the idea for this book? Um, that it, definitely it was anybody can, I say, I really have always felt that um, most people at home don't understand you know, like the basic formula of what makes food taste good. And, and so I'll be at people's homes and they're not making, they're making okay food, but if they just knew a few little things, it would be great food. <laughs> and so really it was just, if you can learn how to use these four elements, you can make anything taste good. And like, and through the story of my own experience of learning this and also just with you know, the things that I've learned that people need to learn and just by teaching them and being around all sorts of different levels of cooks. This is a question, <laughs> saving the obvious. Is it a cookbook, I guess, first of all? I think of it as an uncookbook. <laughs> <laughs> because I want to say the first actual recipe in actual basic recipe format that we as cookbook readers like are used to, or I, think it, I think it's 224 bright cabbage slaw. <laughs> 
And so there's. A, yeah. Did you have any idea there's gonna be that many pages of just advice and and information and and coaching the reader through the cooking process when you were writing the book before you wrote the yes. book? Totally, totally. I um, if I had had my way, I think I wouldn't have included any traditional recipes. So in my original sort of vision envisioning of the book, it was just storytelling and teaching. But um, I, I realized pretty early on that no publisher would buy a cookbook. Or, I mean, that they couldn't understand it as an uncooked book. I wouldn't sell it as an – they would no one would buy an uncooked book. <laughs> so and <laughs> what, do you, what and, do you think ultimately sold them on the book? How, what was the hook? Uh, I think I, – I, you know, I, I had worked on the proposal for so long. It took me almost two years of – Right, you know, I went to work every. I, I went to work three days a week in an office <laughs> with actual writers <laughs> working on that proposal. I had a writing residency just for the proposal. Like I w- spent a lot of time distilling the message of the book, and I was, you know, concurrently teaching the classes and understanding what was working for people. So I was really clear on what the point of the book was when I, by the time I made a proposal and brought it to them and Wendy worked on it with me, you know, not full time or anything, but over the course of a year, we illustrated it together. We did um, like some basic layout. So my proposal was like a mini book. It was a 40 page, fully illustrated, fully designed experience of what I wanted for people to have when they read the book. And I think because that was so fully formed and so complete in its vision, I think it just like knocked people off their seats. And in a way that um, I think you can absolutely doing do it without illustration or without fully doing it. But I think that I, it was very clear that I had put the time into it and that I had a vision to make a thing. And so, but they went bananas for it. I mean, everybody wanted it. Everyone we brought it to bid on it. And, um, you know, it was, it was like a crazy whirlwind. So it, it worked. It didn't just speak to one person. It worked. It spoke to all of them. And I think they all saw the potential for it. So, uh, and it helps, you know, that I'd been cooking for a really long time and I knew, you know, I've been, I knew Michael Pollan and I knew Alice Waters, like all of those sort of more obvious things. I didn't, I don't have, and I, I didn't, and I don't have a massive internet following or anything like that. So it was never going to be one of those, like, I was never going to be Deb Perlman, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but I think the, that it was one of those things that it was, the message was really different. And the, um, you know, and what's funny is like back to the, one of the very first conversations was, um, I was working with Michael Pollan and I would come to his house to teach a cooking lesson, like, I don't know, once a week or once, maybe not quite once a week, a couple times a month. And every time I would bring a different book idea and I'd be like, this time I want to write about like the gutter punk I taught to cook or whatever. (laughs) You know, they were really bad ideas. And every time he'd be like, this is a horrible idea. You cannot write that book. Like that will not become a book. And then finally, when he sort of saw salt, fat, acid, heat, he said, this is your book. I don't know why you're resisting so hard. Like, this is a book. And I said, I don't know. That just seems like it's going to be really difficult. And he said, listen, you live in a weird alternate universe where everyone who you know who writes books is already a celebrity. So you have this really skewed idea of what a book is. But really what publishers want is a unique and strong idea. And that's what this is. So that's why you have to pursue this. So, you know, he had really planted that seed with me. And I think that I I just really... As much as I didn't want to have to do the hard work, I just kept doing it. So, yeah. I mean, I love the book for a lot of reasons. It's interesting how 
thorough the proposal was because the book itself is so thorough that it kind of, and makes sense. Um, uh, there's so much information in there, but as a reader, I think you have a, a unique skill of conveying a lot of information in a very digestible way. Um, and you, and you have a way with words in, in Michael Pollan's forward. Uh, he mentions that you, at one point you described, um, uh, an emulsion, like with salad dressing, as a as a temporary tre- peace treaty between fat and water, um, which I thought was great. I also think what was is something I've, as an editor, uh, have sort of aspired to with uh, perhaps middling success. Um, the difference between telling someone what to cook and teaching them how to cook. Uh, and and Pollen writes, um, a well written and thoroughly tested recipe might tell you how to produce the dish in question but it won't teach you anything about how to cook. Not really. Truth be told, recipes are infantilizing. Quote, colon, just do exactly what I say. They say, but don't ask questions or worry your little head about why. They insist on fidelity and faith, but do nothing to earn or explain it. Um, I think that was really well said by Michael, but then I think you sort of answer the bell and and you do teach people how to cook in this book and you explain things in a way that are meaningful. And I, I kind of feel... Um, so often we as cooks these days who are recipe dependent, it's almost like when you're driving your car and you're just using the GPS. Like you don't actually you don't actually know where you're going and you don't remember where you went because you're just following your iPhone the whole time. And by the time you get there, you're like, I have no idea how I got here. And you don't ever think and learn and sort of acquire skills or, or knowledge. You're just sort of on this weird autopilot. Totally. I, I 100% agree with you. And that's the thing that I've always um, – like been watching out for when I watch other people cook. And, you know, like I have people who've taken my classes. I have some friends who've taken my classes and the classes, depending on how they're structured, they're like 20 or 30 or 40 hours. It's a lot of class that we spend together. And the whole time, the whole point is teaching you how to taste and, and cook instinctually and understand the reasons behind things. And so people really, I watch them come really far. And I was hanging out with some friends. They were also my neighbors, and I went over for dinner one night, and they were like, oh, we made this salad, and we just couldn't get it right, and I don't know what was wrong with it. And I was like, well, what was in it? And they said, oh, you know, you know, radicchio and blue cheese and walnuts, like candied walnuts, and I don't know what else, and, I was, and a honey, like, balsamic dressing or something. I was like, that sounds totally good. What was wrong with it? And they're, they were like, well, you know, <laughs> you know, they had basically – faithfully followed this recipe, you know, and I said, well, where'd you get the recipe? And they just said some website. And I said, well, you know, that person, how did, what are you doing trusting that person? You're the one who's here. You're the one who's going to eat this. I know you know what decisions to make. Even if you follow the basic thing, I know you know how to fix this. So at what point did you abandon your own critical thinking skills and your own common sense? And so I feel like my job or I have felt certainly throughout the whole writing of the book that my job was to just help encourage people to not abandon their senses, you know? Yeah. I think trusting yourself as a, as a cook, I mean, I think most people's, whether it's a beginning cook or expert cook, your instincts are generally right. You know, I, I, it's amazing how many times my sister, who's a big recipe follower, she's one of those types who can't cook unless she's following a recipe, but, She'll pull something out of the oven, like a little hors d'oeuvre she's making. She likes hors d'oeuvres for cocktail parties. And, and like she's like, yeah, these aren't really brown enough. They're not crispy enough. And like, well, I'm like, why didn't you leave them in the oven longer? She's like, well, it said 15 minutes. I'm like, 
were they done after 15 minutes? No, not really. But it said 15 minutes. I'm like, then, they, they, yeah, it's like, don't trust the recipe. Don't trust your oven. We all know all ovens are slightly different in terms of temperature and what it says and what it actually is or size and this and that. But people don't trust themselves as much as they should. You know what tastes good as, as, as an eater. You know what smells good. You can smell when something's ready. But they will say, well, the recipe said only add uh, a quarter teaspoon of salt. I'm like, well, is totally. That? I'm like, did it <laughs> taste know. salty it's- enough? No. Well, add more salt. It's mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling. But I feel, you know, to me, I'm like, in a way, I'm like, maybe I'm kind of like a food therapist, cooking therapist. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. So, all right. So, 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 therapy sessions. All right. So, this this yeah. this book is like a big long therapy session, um, yeah. and I want to start breaking it down by the four components: the, the salt, fat, okay. acid, heat. Uh, but you also say the best way to sort of approach this book is to read it start to finish. I love the notion of that. How many of the readers do you think actually have this book by their bedside and are reading it start to finish? You, I saw someone on the subway reading it. Can you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> a cookbook on the subway did you, it made me so happy. That you, was my life dream. Did you take out your eye, did you take out your phone and take a picture? I did, yep. Awesome. <laughs> it was amazing. Sent it to your mom. Fuck mom. <laughs> No, I mean, that was a big part of also why I didn't want it to be such a huge format book was because I did want you to be able to read it in bed. And um, and I, I really wanted – and I knew, you know, I am – I never do what anyone wants me to do or tells me to do. So I knew there would be a lot of people who don't do the thing that I uh, asked them to do, but I felt like it was important to say that. And certainly so much of part two of the recipes of the part that looks more like a traditional cookbook will make so much more sense after you've read part one. Yeah, but also and, part uh, one is part one is at least nicely and neatly broken into little sub-chapters from, you know, within fat and how fat works and from olive oil to, to beef fat, et cetera, et cetera. So you can sort of cherry pick here and there. It's not like a novel where you're just starting off and it's just words, 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 words. There are the nice little subheads and illustrations. You even have like cool little fold out. I love your The World of Fat. You've got like a little spin wheel of uh, all the mm-hmm. different countries and illustrated what, what sort of fats they, they appreciate most. Um, so there's a lot of different sort of ways to sort of, yeah, keep us sort of ADD people engaged. Um, all right, let's talk salt. I'm, I wanna, let's make our listeners better cooks. Uh, starting with salt, I contend that the average home cook doesn't salt enough. Agreed. Why is that and what should they be doing? I think the why I think my hunch is that is sort of twofold. One is that at some point in the eighties, you know, we were sort of like salt was scared out of us and out of our parents. So what? the eighties, like, you know what? I'm calling bullshit on the eighties. Excuse my French. You but, really? Yeah, but <laughs> I, I mean, there was some good music, maybe, but um, but we weren't allowed to have salt. Eggs were bad for you. Remember that? Like, eggs are yeah, terrible. I definitely remember eggs being bad. Pork. I don't eat pork. That we have to I make it like, the, the leanest, blandest pork pie. It's like yeah, like hey, let's have no fun in the eighties, except for when you're off doing drugs at the club or something. But otherwise, food wise, <laughs> it was not a fun food decade. Maybe I just think the eighties because my mom didn't use a lot of salt in the eighties, but <laughs> but you know, I it is sort of it's one of those things, right? And and with good reason because I think for people who have high blood pressure or like. After, it's funny because the like the anti salt people have as predicted come after me, 
And so, like, there are all these people who are like, a lot of people are born without without one kidney. And so, for you to tell people to use salt is really dangerous. And I'm like, what's a lot of people? It's yeah. like one out of, you know, to 100,000 or something. And so... Um, but also, listen, if, you're but, salt, if, you, if you are salt sensitive, then you know you're salt sensitive. And I do was, not do what I tell you. I was, you know, your doctor for sure supersedes me. If you are salt sensitive, you should read this book with a grain of salt. Ooh, oh, absolutely. How about that? <laughs> I've, I've got, I've got, a, on this side. <laughs> I've, I've got all sorts of bad jokes ready to go. But I think, you know, most people, and I think the other part of it for people who maybe aren't salt sensitive is that they don't think, you know, like we grew up with salt on, in a shaker on the table. It's not a, it's not something that everybody considers as this very crucial ingredient. And I think it's scary, especially because if you, let's say, sprinkle too much salt on your food at the end, it'll be really salty and that's yeah. very unpleasant. And so there's this way where it's scary. It seems very scary to use a lot of salt. And a lot of times when, for example, you're salting a huge pot of water, it seems like crazy that you will be ingest, you know, to think that you're going to ingest all that salt. But, you know, like 99% of it goes down the drain. It's just about creating a salty enough environment for the food. And so I like what I always do and what I encourage people to do when I'm not there to do it for them is to do one pot as salty as I tell you to, or as I suggest, and one, one pot of water as salty as you think and cook your broccoli side by side and see which one tastes better. You know, like it's not going to be inedibly salty if you just try it. And a lot of times you don't even have to go, maybe if you're too scared or too nervous about using as much as I suggest, just use a little bit more and you'll, you'll see that it makes such an amazing difference. I mean, salt unlocks a lot of like the aromatic molecules that sort of increase our experience of a flavor because flavor is sort of where taste and and aroma and texture and temperature all intersect. So aroma is a really big part of flavor. So by using more salt, you actually taste your food more. You know. Yeah, and, and, you, and it's more immediately satisfying. And, you, and let's talk about salting. So there's like as a, a home cook, there's salting before, somewhat salting during, and then there's certainly salting after at the table. And like before, you talk about a couple of things with, with water. I mean, a if you don't salt your pasta water, your pasta itself will not taste like anything. The, the pasta needs a salty bath to absorb some flavor, correct? Totally, yes. And that's one of those ones where, like, the first time you taste, uh, like, once you're acclimated to properly salted pasta water, the first time you taste bland pasta, you'll never be able to untaste that. You know, you'll always understand that it was not, you know, and it's not, a, a salty sauce is not going to make up for undersalted no. oh, water. That's, and that's the thing. You often then people try to add more salt after the fact, and then you add, end up adding more salt. It's not satisfying, and you end up having more salt than you need or should had you just done it on the front end. Also, you, you write about salting water for when you're blanching or boiling green vegetables or the string beans and whatnot. And talk about that and, and the minerals and, and, and nutrients in the vegetables themselves and how they react with the water. Yeah. So, I mean, there are all these different kinds of, you know, sodium is the main salt that we ingest, but there are other kinds of salts like magnesium salts and I think calcium salts in vegetables that are in the minerals of the soil that the vegetables absorbed as they grow. And so um, a vegetable itself will be mineral rich. <laughs> and if the cooking environment is less mineral rich than the vegetable, then, you know, the properties of osmosis are going to make that vegetable leach out some of its minerals. And um, you're, it will become gray. It will become less nutritious. It will become certainly less delicious. And usually because salt helps soften um, 
vegetables as they cook, you'll end up having to cook your vegetables longer if there's not enough salt in the water, and then they'll even give up more nutrients. So if you properly salt the veg- the water, the vegetable will actually end up being more nutritious, and you'll cook it for less time. It'll be more vibrantly colored. It'll be certainly more delicious. And so, um, and, and you know, like, like I said, most of that salt goes down the drain. And I always use, I partly because I love the drama of it, I love the... Um, Diamond crystal kosher salt the re- in the red box yep. because it's it's really not that salty. Like you have to use almost three times as much to to equal a teaspoon of fine sea salt, and so you know it's like handfuls and handfuls of it. <laughs> well, we we've had <laughs> we've had water. Um, issues at Bon Appetit in the magazine and recipes. Um, you know, kosher salt in that box is, is, is much more commonplace these days. Um, a lot of Americans still use the iodized, like, Morton salt that we grew up mm-hmm. with. And, and the, like, a teaspoon of iodized Morton salt is going to be a lot saltier than a teaspoon of diamond kosher salt. And yeah, it's correct, like three times. <laughs> yes. And that's a problem. Sometimes we, people have written in, like, this recipe is way too salty. And we're like, well, what type of salt are you using? And it's a little complicated because, well, every recipe, do you have to specify kosher salt or break down? Like, well, if you're using this salt, use this much. Um, but, it, yeah, th- th- there is a difference between salts. All right, let me ask you a question. You are you – ha- let's say you have a beautiful, um, dry-aged, inch-and-a-half-thick strip steak that you're going to grill mm-hmm. up because I know you love to grill – um, when do you salt it? How much do you salt it? Uh, and then do you salt it after the grill, et cetera? What's your, what's your process with the steak? Um, first, uh, an inch and a half steak, I would probably just do it. I mean, I probably wouldn't bother with doing it the day before. So I might just do it in the morning. I would give it like three or four hours at least of time to, to go in. I would use kind of, I would lay out the meat on my counter or on a cookie sheet and let the salt shower out of my hand. You know, in mm-hmm. the book, I call it a wrist wag. Um, <laughs> but it doesn't matter to me if it's... I, another reason I do love that diamond crystal kosher salt is because it's rolled into flakes. And so it has this greater surface area and it really sticks to the meat. And so because you have to use more of it to equal, you know... Um, the same amount of salt as with another salt. It kind of looks like a snowstorm has passed through. Mm. So <laughs> you're making you're I, making it, it rain. Makes for a nice Instagram, yeah. if you will. <laughs> so you sorry. So you'll in, all right. So you say three hours beforehand. In, I like to sometimes do it on a little like a little um, cooling rack. So if it starts to drip, then oh, it's yeah. not sitting its own liquid. Do you put it back in the fridge or do you leave it on the counter? Um, well, I live in Berkeley. It's pretty temperate here. It's not too, so I'll just leave it out. I'm, I'm pretty relaxed, relaxed with, uh, leaving the meat out. I definitely, you know, and if the other thing about salt is that, um, the colder the temperature, the longer it will take to diffuse throughout mm. a piece of meat or, or a dish. So if you are going to do it the day before, you know, if it's something really big and you are going to keep it in the fridge overnight, then you should salt it earlier to give it the time to diffuse throughout. Uh, but um, I don't know. I'm pretty relaxed. Plus, meat should be at room temperature or close to room temperature when you start cooking it. So, And then after you grill it to a perfect medium rare with a crispy crust and you slice mm-hmm. it, are you the type <laughs> that then will sprinkle some Malden on there afterwards or – What's your take on? First, I'll taste it, mm-hmm. and then, um, and then if it needs some, I'll probably yeah, add some some Maldon salt and black pepper or something at that point. Yeah, I always used to have like I don't want to say fights, but bickering with my mom. My mom was I don't know if, of her generation or whatever, but she would be. But you had a restaurant, and she would just reach for the salt shaker before she's even tasted anything. And I'm like, Mom, you should taste it. She's like, Oh, I know it needs salt, Adam. I'm like, How do you know it needs salt? Like, I can just tell. <laughs> 
Um, One of the things I read in Marcella Hazan's book is that she could tell when something needed more salt just by smelling it. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I believe that. <laughs> um, all right. So you use more salt than you think, obviously, in, in, in waters, whether you're boiling potatoes or making rice or, you know, vegetables, pasta, um, meat needs salt. You said, obviously, longer braising, big cuts of meat need a bit more salt uh, than like a steak or whatnot. You talk about fish. That's one thing. Like fish, you don't need to salt ahead of time, correct? Yeah, or- fish I'll just do maybe like 10 minutes before or even just right before because the salt really will change the protein structure. I couldn't tell you how. I just know that it gets kind of tough and weird and rubbery. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, Don't worry about fish. All right, so use more salt. Uh, sorry, sorry. Salt and earlier, people. I think earlier. use it, use more, but also use it earlier is the other key. And the and the more you use earlier, the less you use have to use after. And I and I and I do think that's one of those things. Like if you ever try to make mashed potatoes or boiled potatoes and you forget to salt the water, there is no amount of salt after the fact that will give those potatoes flavor. All right, let, let's talk fat. Um, yes. I mean, America loves fat. I know that. <laughs> um, <laughs> what what are we what are we getting right about fat or not getting right? Is do we not? I, I think we understand it. I don't know. What, what's your take on the home cooking fat? I think so. The main thing that I've learned, um, the sort of like aha moment that I think makes a big difference for people is because fat is this incredible carrier of flavor and and conveyor of flavor. Um, and also because many fats have a flavor of their own, it really determine the fat you start a dish with will determine the taste of the final dish. And so um, that makes a difference in a couple different ways. One, it makes a difference. Um, you know, a lot of people, a lot of the olive oil sold in this country is either off or about to be off <laughs> and just doesn't taste that good. And, and we as Americans don't have necessarily like the most attuned palates to what olive oil really should taste like. So a lot of people even have like a nostalgic fondness for rancid olive oil or for, you know, just slightly off olive oil. So then that will determine I've tasted so many dishes that are perfectly good other than the fact that they were started with bad olive oil. And like that kind of infiltrates the flavor of the whole thing. So that's one of them is to sort of like learn a little bit about olive oil, start using better olive oil, because that really will determine the flavor of your cooking. And also, you know, the fat that you use geographically and um, sort of historically and traditionally will determine the taste of your food. So if you think about what parts of the world, I don't know, like olive trees are Mediterranean. And so Mediterranean countries really rely heavily on olive oil. But if I wanted to make Thai food, you know, olive trees don't grow in Thailand. Uh, and I started, I don't know, if I was making, let's say, pad thai or whatever, and I started that with olive oil, it would never taste right. No matter, even if I used all of the other ingredients from Thailand, <laughs> because that fat is at the foundation of the uh, of the taste. And so it's about sort of doing a little thinking. And a lot of times it's just the choice between olive oil and butter. Um, but other times it can be the choice between lard and olive oil and butter or canola oil, which is so neutral, or another neutral tasting oil, well, which can, won't take you in any direction. Can we, yeah, because right, you've worked in restaurants over the years. Um, I feel like as home cooks, America became very much this olive oil country in the sort of the 80s and 90s. Um, mm-hmm. And as a home cook, we think, all right, you cook with olive oil, period. But if you go into a restaurant kitchen, you guys often use a lot more neutral oils when sautéing things over high heat and when you're steel steel pans, right? It's not just purely olive oil back there on the line. Yeah, 
I mean, some of it is cost related, <laughs> my experience. <laughs> you know, like I've never seen, for what it's worth, at Chapinese, I've never seen a drop of canola oil. So, <laughs> but they 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 do have a pure olive oil, a less heavily like olivey tasting one, and then a more olivey tasting one. And then um, a lot of restaurants here in California, there's a great producer of rice bran oil, which is really neutral tasting. And so, a lot of restaurants I know will use that as the as the plain flavor. But yeah, it's a lot of the time you don't want to make your thing taste Italian. You don't want to make it taste like it's from Provence or, you know, Tunisia or wherever. So you, um, you use the fat that makes sense. And so to me, I have, there's this great oil that I found someone showed me called, it's this producer called Solio. It's like a group of family farms in the South, I think. And they make this great cold pressed canola oil. It's non-GMO. It tastes like nothing. It's super clean tasting. And so I always have that at home. That's like when I'm making refried beans, you know, or like, uh, I don't know, whatever. If, if it's not, you know, Italian, North African, French or Spanish or Iranian or whatever, even Iranian food, we don't use a ton of olive oil, then I'll, I'll use that canola oil. Um, I, I also feel the home cook uh, sometimes doesn't use enough oil, particularly uh, let's say you're making uh, whether you want to call it schnitzel or milanese or katsu mm-hmm. or any sort of, of of cutlet that's breaded. If you don't have enough oil in the pan. Then you get the dreaded ring of raw breadcrumbs. <laughs> yeah, the raw breadcrumbs, and then it gets burnt in certain parts. And just because there's a lot of oil in the pan, it doesn't mean that cutlet is absorbing all that oil. It's just I know, correct? and that's one of my big things that I'm trying to get people to u- to learn and realize is that Oil is a tool, you know, and it's it's almost like you can think of it, especially when you're shallow or deep frying, you can think of it as a cooking tool rather than an ingredient because um, it's about, and that's why it's called a medium, is because it's the medium that's mediating the heat. It's between the heat source and your food. It's not part of your food necessarily. So um, it's what enable you know, oftentimes olive oil or, or whatever oil you're deep frying in can get so much hotter and so much evenly hotter than your pan can and certainly than water or any other ingredient. And that's what's going to allow you to get a nice even crust, a perfectly golden brown even crust. One of the things I hate, which I think is what you were just referring to, is when you get like kind of pock marks, like black oh. pock marks. And that's because there wasn't enough oil in the pan. And so the food becomes in direct contact with the pan which, you know, like a cast iron pan gets so, so, so hot. So the heat is um, uneven and it's just, it's not, it's, it's not enough. So to me, I'm like the slotted spoon is my friend. <laughs> the tongs are my friend and the like blotting napkin. So I can use enough oil to get that nice, even, even browning. And then I lift the food out and let it drain. I'm not consuming the oil. I'm just using it as the tool to get the nice brown crust. All right. Speaking about heat, I'm going to skip ahead to heat. I'm saving acid okay. for last. Um, okay. Again, there's, I feel like there's this big leap between home cook and restaurant cook. When you go into the, a restaurant kitchen or we see it in the movies, um, the line cooks always seem to be firing their pans over just intense, crazy heat. It's just like <laughs> – and I'm like, should I be doing that at home? Do I know how to do it? Is it a different pan? Like, I, I, Can you talk about having worked in restaurant kitchens and how uh, the professional cook approaches the, the range and, and the heat they use? Sure. Well, 
Well, what's funny that you say that is that I feel like I spent my entire, especially the time when I was running restaurant kitchens, where it was just me in charge of like 16, you know, 25-year-old dudes. Uh, I spent my entire day just like walking past the range and turning it down. Like, I was like, it should almost never be at this full blast. This is insane. So is it just, is it, is it just like a macho thing that they think that's yeah, tough I, or I something? Yeah, I I think part of it is a macho thing. Part of it is as a line cook, you're always behind. You always feel like you're behind. So you're like, oh, if I go, if I crank it up, it'll go faster. Even though we all know it won't go faster. Yeah. <laughs> and so <laughs> I love that you brought that up because to me, I was like, don't ever do that. You know, right, I'm, I'm and gonna... also those. Yeah. Oh no, right, I was just gonna throw my wife under the bus. Um, she, <laughs> so Simone will often, so we'll have a cast iron skillet, and she's running late for something. So instead of just turning the pan on, say medium heat, and letting it come to temperature, and a lot of times if you're making like a steak or something, you want the pan on medium, but you have to wait like five minutes till the pan gets all the way hot at medium. She will just turn right. it on high because like, well, I only have two minutes to make this, so I'm just gonna turn it on high, but like. <laughs> But then she, that thing you talk about, she ends up burning the outside and undercooking the inside. I'm like, you can't fast track it. You have to let the pan come to heat. But I think that's a big mistake people make is like they, they, don't, they don't let the pan get hot enough before they add the, the, the cutlet or the steak or the, you know, the, the fish fillet or something. Totally. And you, and that is something I think most people are kind of shocked to realize that's that's, it's a big thing. A, if you do, if you preheat your pan enough and preheat whatever fat you're adding, chances are that your food won't stick. You know, that's, it's a big nonstick measure for one thing, but also it's about getting, it's about being respectful to that like very expensive olive oil that you used because by letting it just come up really quickly, instead of taking a really long time in there, it's going to change less and it's going to sort of degrade less and taste better. And then also your food will get nice and brown on the outside without overcooking in the middle or uh, yeah, it'll just cook more evenly and more quickly. If you, it's, it's, it's like the time you spend preheating, you earn it back later. <laughs> it just doesn't seem like it because it doesn't feel like active cooking, but it is active cooking. And so, um, and also those restaurant burners have like 220,000 BTUs or something. They're so much stronger than a home burner, you know? And so at home, I sometimes do crank my stove cause I just live in this like jankety apartment <laughs> and I have, I have pretty weak burners that, um, so I will sometimes crank it, but I still, I don't know, even when I'm writing recipes and I'm testing stuff, I find that the only time it's really for any extended amount of time over high heat is when I'm trying to boil a pot of water. Yeah. I mean, but it's yeah. I, I do think heat is one of those things that I, I, I think a lot of us have a sort of a, a maybe trepidatious relationship with that, that that people are afraid to turn it up too high or they do turn it high, think that they're going to do it quicker. Um, but it's, it's that issue of, and I think you you write, you give people advice as a cooking instructor and a, and a cookbook author, an uncookbook author, excuse me. Um, <laughs> but I think a lot of it is experience and knowing that like, hey, for if you, if you have that inch and a half think, thick uh, strip steak, you want that pan pretty pretty darn hot, but you know not too hot, and that's going to give you that nice golden brown crust. But if you're making what you write about in the book, like a grilled cheese, um, it's interesting. I go to this place out in, in Orient, Long Island, the Orient Country Store, and Miriam, who runs it, uh, they make amazing grilled cheese. And, and my theory is that they don't rush it um, because if you have right. if you have grilled cheese on hot, a it's butter, so butter burns sooner than like a neutral oil. 
B, if you get the outside crusty quickly, the inside's not going to be melty. And you yeah. have to be patient. And you have to have it on, I think, like kind of medium-low heat and yep. just let it gradually get golden brown on the outside, flip it, let that side get gradually golden brown. And by the time that's done, the cheddar cheese or whatever in the middle will be nice and gooey and, and melty. Um, but it that's, I don't know, I, I think that's one of the things you kind of have to learn that the hard way maybe. Yeah, I definitely, I think there's a lot about cooking you have to learn the hard way. <laughs> and I, I mean, to me, that goes back to my like cooking idea, the joke about being a cooking therapist is, you know, if, if I, if it comes down to it, what I would ask people is what are you so afraid of? You know, what are you afraid of about adding more salt or, or using lower heat or using higher heat? And I think people are afraid of messing up. And so, and the thing about it is like, we all make mistakes. I still make mistakes every single day, you know? I think a lot of time people cook these days when they're entertaining. Um, that a lot of people now with you know both if they're it's in a, a family situation, you know, mom and dad or husband and wife both work, and a lot of times when they come home they're ordering or they're doing blue apron or something. And it's, so when they do cook, then they're having friends over and it's a big thing, and they're like, oh, I don't want to screw this up. And that's almost kind of the overriding sentiment is I don't want to screw this up. Yeah. <laughs> It's okay. Um, just go. <laughs> just have enough wine I mean, no. and everything will be fine. <laughs> it's true. I mean, and I think, well, I mean, this is a whole other conversation, but there for sure is just this sort of like, there's no value of like being an amateur anymore. Everyone wants to turn turn out the perfect thing so that they can, for their people they're entertaining or for Instagram or whatever. And yeah. so this, there's just this like, we don't care. We're afraid to mess up. And we're, and to me, it's okay because all of those things just go into your like filing cabinet of experience, of cooking experience. And yeah. so if you do overcook that steak, that's fine. You eat a slightly overcooked steak and you just remember, you're like, oh, I didn't preheat my pan enough, you know? And then you can translate that to the next time when you're outside and grilling and you're like, oh, it's really important to let those grilled grates get really hot before I put that steak down because when I didn't do it inside, my steak overcooked. Yeah. And so, or like you want to get them nice and hot so that whole fish doesn't stick to the grill, you know? And like, exactly. And let the fish exactly. go and go and go and then finally flip it when it's nice and crispy. I mean, I think, um, you know, and also I do think as as the home cook, I mean, between entertaining and watching, you know, we've all grown up watching Chopped or Top Chef and whatnot. And like, yeah, it's like it's a competition almost. And it's got to be amazing every time. Um, <laughs> and it doesn't have to be. It just has to be, just has to be tasty. But I, I'm, I'm fascinated. I'm 47 now. And I still feel like I am learning so much as a home cook just by experience. Like, oh, I'm like, oh, wow, that was delicious. Well, why was it delicious? Oh, I did it this way. I added that. I added something acidic and something sweet to the salad and crunchy. And like, oh, okay. And now I'm going to make sure I always have those components in my salads from now on. Um, I hope you keep learning. Like, to me, I hope I keep learning. I hope that's where the beautiful and curious and, you know, I I hope it never – because when you stop learning, it's not – yeah. interesting anymore. Like, yeah. I don't want to know everything about this. I want to keep, I like making the mistakes. I like understanding how far also, because for me, and I imagine that on a different scale, this is how it is for home cooks is that I, a lot of the mistakes I make are because I'm either trying to take a shortcut and I'm trying to see, is that shortcut going to work mm-hmm. <laughs> or I'm distracted or, um, I'm just trying something new and I think it's okay. It's okay to sort of push the edges and, and, for me, I had this weird um, sort of narrative arc of my cooking career where I became a professional cook first, and I really didn't cook at home for like almost 15 years until I left restaurants. And then I had to transition, and so many of the things that I had learned in restaurants I, that 
I started breaking rules, you know, things like, oh, under no circumstances will we freeze our chicken stock, you know, (laughs) or under no circumstances should you ever do this, this, or this. And there's so many things now that I feel like because I have this funny background of professional cooking and I know what taste I'm after or what is possible, the potential for deliciousness, I can try to like take a funny circuitous home cook route to get there. And so for me, it's still this exploration where I'm always like, you know, yesterday I was cooking these, we have these peppers. The, in California, the Jimmy Nardello, they're like oh, Italian yes. frying pepper. Do you guys get those out there? I know. I remember having them yeah. in California, and we got. I see someone got them here. I forget what chef got them. Got them in from from California, and of course they're like, so why, sweet and, and so why, good. They're why just are like they called Jimmy Nardello? And yeah, yeah, and um, they're just they're one of my favorite summer things. And in any time I'm in a restaurant, like the funnest, best thing, or any fancy kitchen, I'll I'll throw them in a cast iron in the wood oven, and it's all about getting them blistered and like or grilling them over a fire is really nice too. And I don't, you know, last night I was home, I got home at six thirty. The last I wanted to do with any of that. So I like turned on the oven to the highest. I went outside and uh, watered the garden and I came back and I just put them in a cast iron. And I was like, I wonder, you know, am I going to be able to get that same blistery goodness? And I fully did. You know, there's just a way where, and I just, it's because I knew what I needed to do. I needed to let the pan heat in the oven. I knew that I needed to give it its time. And then once it went, you know, it took six minutes. It was fine. But (laughs) But I mean, that comes back to the whole premise of your book is that if you understand the technique and the reason why something is delicious because it's intense heat or it's well seasoned, et cetera, et cetera, then you can take it. You don't need an outdoor grill. You can figure out how to do it in your oven, et cetera. Um, The last element, acid. Um, Acid, I, I think what's interesting about acid is that's probably the concept that I think we cooks are least sort of cognizant of. I mean, we we know mm-hmm. heat because we have to heat something up. We all salt stuff. Whether we salt it enough is another question. We all like fat. Acid is the one thing. Like when you, anytime I hear a professional chef taste something, like chef, what do you think this more, needs more of? And they always go, needs more acid. Acid. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Why is that? Like, um, it's one. Well, for one thing, I remember the feeling of being in the kitchen and hearing that acid, the word acid over and over, and it just sounded so clinical and I had no idea what it meant. They need to rebrand it. Acid is like, Ugh. yeah. <laughs> and so, and so I think there's just a way where, you know, at home or in the grocery store, we don't walk around being like, oh, like this is the acid aisle, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and so there, it just seems very fam- like unfamiliar to most people, I think as part of it. So I think for me, a big job and what made it kind of exciting was I felt like I got the sort of privilege of introducing this very important thing to people and, and reframing it for them. And the fact that, you know, it's more that we just want something tangy to contrast all of the other things. And so one of the kind of best tidbits I learned um, when I was doing all the sort of science homework was about the word mouthwatering, which is, you know, um, basically anytime we eat something acidic, our mouths fill naturally with saliva because our bodies are trying to prevent our teeth from corroding. And so by like rushing saliva into your mouth, the pH of your mouth um, doesn't get as acidic. And so to balance out whatever acidic thing you just ate. So that whole idea of something mouthwatering is really about it being nice and acidic. And so a lot of times you don't even have to eat the acidic thing. You can just think of lemonade or think of, I don't know, a perfect peach and your mouth will already start to water. So it's for me, I'm like, okay, well, that's that's what I'm after in that taste. You know, for salt, I explained it like a zing. Like when you eat something that's properly salted, it's like a zing. And when you eat something that's properly acidic, you just, your mouth fills with, you know, 
sort of like a perfect sort of, um, I think of it like a pinball bouncing off of like all the roof of your to- roof of your mouth and all the sides. Like you're just having this like flavor explosion and you're having your mouth fills with like water and you're so excited to eat it. And so a lot of the time when I eat things that are not properly acidic, it just falls flat on my tongue. And it's one of those things where people are like, I don't know what you're talking about and I don't have that kind of a palate, but you actually do. We all already know that. And you're already doing that. Everyone's already doing that. When you squirt you know, ketchup on your french fries, a big part of why that ketchup is so good with those salty, crunchy, fatty french fries is because it's filled with vinegar and tomatoes. It's acidic. Yeah. And, and, and so it provides this contrast. Yeah, I think contrast is an interesting point. And acid provides contrast and balance. And it's like if you get barbecue, there's often like coleslaw with it. Yeah. yeah, there's something or a vinegary sauce. The meat is yeah. so rich and fatty. Uh, I made bosom the other night with a friend, uh, and you have this big glazed crispy pork shoulder, and you want some kimchi or that ginger scallion thing. You need something to cut through that fat. Um, totally. With with acid, is it tip? Is acid more? That's something more that's usually added after the fact, um, after something's cooked to give it a little zip and a little zing. Yeah, I I sort of break it down in my thinking into kind of two kinds of acids. So there's like the basic sort of cooking acids that we add into long cooked foods or earlier on in cooking things like wine um, or maybe a vinegar that you might put into, I don't know, like a, or, you know, when you're making carnitas and they squeeze a uh, Seville orange into that braise earlier at the, at the beginning. And then when you sit down to eat your carnitas taco, you also put all the condiments on top. And so you're getting sort of these cooking acids that are layered in early. Whenever you're making a, I don't know, bolognese sauce, you put wine in there and tomatoes at the beginning. And then a lot of times you'll put Parmesan on right at the end. So you're getting sort of these two hits. You're getting the the long-term acid that has time to sort of metabolize into your dish and soften and become part of the foundation of the flavor. And then you use the garnishing acids, which is to me like, the most exciting ingredients in my life are those garnishing acids. Can you, <laughs> Things can you, like I, can, the yogurt. I grew up putting yogurt on everything. So like yogurt or cheese or that little bit of Parmesan that you put on top of something. The hot sauce. Hot sauce is almost always ba- based in vinegar or something fermented. You know, um, pickles, sour cream, all of those things, um, they provide a little acid. And that's what makes a big difference. You know, like... Mexican food is such a great way to think about it where like we're I'm or any food any I'm always into the cultures where like you get to make a lot of condiments so Mm -hmm. I love making Moroccan food and Indian food and Iranian food because I love all of those different like vinegary lemony sour things. Well, it's also nice when you're in Mexico and every time you sit at a table there's the little bowl of those beautiful limes cut in half and you're going to squeeze totally. you're, you're going to give like everything the pickles yeah. yeah yeah you have the pickles you have the lime juice and you're just always giving everything a shot what about in terms of like chefs will uh sometimes hit like a soup or a stew with maybe some vinegar or something at the end after it's done is that normal yeah i definitely you know especially for things that have been cooked for a very long time or are very sweet maybe because of i don't know like right now this time of year corn or a lot of onions in there um, this was one of those tricks that kind of shocked me because it just seemed so confusing and wrong to put vinegar 
into a cooked soup, <laughs> but it's not about you. There shouldn't ever be enough that you even know it, that it's there. You know, like the untrained palate wouldn't know that it's there. It just lightly sort of balances out that sweetness with a little bit of a counterpoint. And that way you actually get to taste the sweetness more and enjoy it more. Um, yeah. So I'll, even when I'll make caramelized onions, like really deeply caramelized onions for whatever, for French onion soup or whatever, I'll sneak a little, a few tablespoons, a few teaspoons of, um, red wine vinegar in there at the end and it's not enough to even know it doesn't taste pickly or anything it just tastes sweeter really um all right uh samin before we let you go we're doing the lightning round either or okay. questions are you ready for this one ready i'm ready i'm ready all right because you just talked about this carnitas or carne asada Ooh, carnitas do you have a favorite uh taqueria in, in san francisco um who well, my favorite taqueria is it's like old school. It's La Taqueria on yep. Mission and Twenty Fifth. Yeah, mm, so I, good. My my mouth is watering right now. <laughs> I can taste the carnitas. Um, all right, speaking of uh, in cooking cookbooks and instructors, uh, Jacques or Julia? Ooh, ooh, hard. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Oh my god! This is like the choice. This is a horrible choice. You get uh, one, dude. I'm, oh my, <sighs> Jacques. Yeah, I mean, I love them both, but yeah, I love him on TV. I, I, watching him like bone a chicken and stuff. You're like, oh my god! Oh this man, is he's such a master. There's a there's a video of him on YouTube boning out a chicken. He does it in like forty seconds no, or something. That's absurd. <laughs> um, lump hardwood or briquettes? Oh, lump. Lump. Well, those get hot. Really hot. Speaking yeah. of heat, sea salt or kosher salt? Sea salt. Oh, interesting. I thought you, you were I giving know. kosher so much I know, love. I just went back wow. on my thing, but like, I, the problem is I love all the salts, but I really love, if I had to, you know, if money were no object, <laughs> I would just cook with Meldon salt till the end of the time. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, you get one of these the rest of your life lemon juice or vinegar? <gasps> Can lime juice be the other one? <laughs> But you want but you want to choose between lemon and lime, or lemon, lime, and vinegar. I would choose lime. Lime is my everything. Oh, okay. Yeah. Lime is your yeah. everything. All right, I like that. Rice or potatoes? Rice. I'm Iranian. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm sure you've chatted with our, our one of our test kitchen editors, Andy Baragani, here. About, oh yeah. About we're, the, we're brother and sister. About basically. the the proper way to cook rice, which is a quite an involved process. Crispy fried eggs or custardy scrambled eggs? Ooh, crispy fried eggs. Steph or KD? Uh, KD. <laughs> <laughs> but really my favorite is Iggy. Sorry. Oh, okay. All right, Mr. Iguodala. All right, last question. Butter or olive oil? Oh, my God. What am I going to do? Butter, I guess. You can do a lot with butter. All right, yeah. Samin, thank you so much for joining yeah. us. Thanks, you guys. This was so fun. Thanks, right. Adam. Bye-bye. Bon Appetit Foodcast is produced by Emma Wurtzman and Carrie Polis and edited by Mitra Kaboli. Our theme music is by Valerie and the Grady's with additional music by Nathaniel Wurtzman. We have new episodes every Wednesday. And if you want to tell us about this or any other episode, email us at bonappetitfoodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.